quick one if you'd like to support us on our journey to a thousand please do consider subscribing or following this podcast wherever it is you're listening to this thank you have you ever struggled to communicate and really get what's on your mind off your chest with a spouse at work with a friend and on that does everybody have the right to communicate whatever's on their mind should we all have freedom of speech at what stage do we say okay You've gone way too far now. We're going to ban you and kick you off all of these different social platforms because you're spewing too much hateful rhetoric. If you've ever wondered any of these things, then, well, you're in the right place right now because we've got communications expert Janelle Aldridge on the podcast today. You're probably even wondering, what's a communications expert? How does one even become a communications expert? Well, in true 1000 Voices style, we're going to answer all of these questions and many many more so stay tuned for a very inspirational interview with janelle aldred my name is tevin kitto and i'm the chief change maker here at 1000 voices where we are on a mission to interview 1000 inspirational black britons ultimately we're working to reduce wealth inequalities within the uk so stay tuned and follow us along on our journey but that's that for now and without further ado this is 1000 voices and here we have janelle aldred hello hello janelle how are you doing today Hello, Tevin. I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm so good. So good. So excited to have you on, actually. Yeah. So thank you for coming to the podcast. Really, really, really appreciate it. And I know that you've rushed home after one of your golfing days. So <laughs> yeah, it's my, my new hobby slash obsession. Yeah. How's that going? Some days good, some days very bad. <laughs> I mean, today was a bad day, but a good day for me, if that makes sense. <laughs> you know what? You're probably better than me. I've never played like proper golf, like 18 hole golf. I've played top, you know, top golf. Yes, yes, yes. I've played top golf and my technique is all over the place. <laughs> so I'm fine and I'm doing lessons, I'm doing everything. I think golf is really, really hard. Um, some people say it's not a sport, but it's really, really tricky. So I'm getting into it and I'm practicing a lot. Um so probably far too much, actually. But yeah, I'm really getting into it. Wow, that sounds good. That sounds good. So before we kick things off, for people who don't know who you are, do you mind giving us a little bit of an introduction, a bit of a background as to who you are? So I'm Janelle Aldred. I was a journalist for 13 years. That's how my career began, really. And I worked for the BBC in the West Midlands and ITV in the West Midlands, too. I worked for ITN in London, ITN Productions. That was Channel 5 News and also ITV London. And in all those places I was presenting. So a little bit of weather at the start of my career and then just news, digital news. I started doing online news when there was no algorithms. There was no engagement. No one was counting anything. It was just about being on the Internet. So that's probably how a clue to how old I am and also then after I left journalism I went into senior management in the charity sector and also in the corporate sector and then moving on from there became my big probably lifetime goal really which was to be a consultant so to work on different things every day so that's kind of what I do now but everything is all kind of wrapped up in comms. That's great that's great amazing background and and right now so your consultancy is a key communications consultancy right? Yes yeah it is. Yeah that's amazing. So we're going to touch on a lot of communications type topics. To start off with, I always like to take it back and start off with like a bit of a foundation, let people know where you come from and all of that. When I was looking into your background, yeah, I saw that you've moved around quite a lot. Yes. Yeah, quite a lot. So to start off with, what I'm interested in knowing is, um, uh, you know, with you moving around so much in your childhood, in what way do you feel like that's impacted or affected the way that you relate and communicate with people? In some good and bad ways, I think the good ways is it's never hard for me to start fresh because when you move, I went to seven different schools, never been expelled from one, but went to seven different schools. So you have to meet new people and create new friendships, build your way into friendship circles. So I think as an adult, that is a very great transferable skill for networking, for joining a new place. You know, you're able to find a way in, find a way through, connect with people and do all of that kind of sifting. And I think that's what a lot of adults are actually scared of in terms of networking when it comes to growing businesses or even in their workplace, speaking to people they don't know. That is great. I think the the downside of that is it is very easy to move on because that's been our life. That's that's kind of been the foundational and formation years is kind of moving on from things, moving on from people. When we were moving, there was no email, it was like letters. So, you know, there's any, there's a limit to how much you kept in touch with people. So I think it does give you this great expansive way of being with lots of people. 
but also the ability to kind of be like, okay, that's over. And sometimes that isn't always healthy as an adult, but good and bad. But I think overall, I would say good, definitely positive. Yeah. And what was the reason behind the moves? Was it like family, career? Yeah. So my dad was a minister um, in a Pentecostal church when I was growing up. And so he was quite a charismatic person. And so he would get sent different places. And that was a different time, I suppose, I guess, in the black community story as well of church, when church was really more of the central hub for the community. And faith was really very central. And so, if, you know, your church said to you, we need you to move here to this church. The answer was always yes, I think. These days it would be more, well, my kids are in school, so probably not going to do that. But I think back then it was a different time. So we moved quite a lot because of that. And then further still, because when we moved, it was all not always short notice, but not the longest amount of notice. So sometimes our house wasn't sold yet. So we'd have to go and rent whilst they were selling the house and then they'd sell the house and then we'd move into a new home. So that kind of also further meant that we moved several more times. So it didn't really feel like massive upheaval at the time. Strangely, it was a very uh, secure family unit in that sense. So I don't think I felt like I was moving from pillar to post. I, I didn't have that sense. It was just part of our lifestyle. So yeah, just part of what we did. Yeah. And it's interesting when you talk about the house aspect, something popped into my mind. So in your book, which we're going to get into in a moment anyways, Communicate for Change, amazing book. Uh, there's a part where you talk about the black community and how uh, you know, oftentimes black people are just grouped into one big homogenous group where if you're black, then you've got a one person not coming to for black people. But you don't get that for other communities. And within black, uh, well, within black British people, we've got different subgroups. You've got your working class, middle class, et cetera, et cetera. And what pops into my mind now is that when you said that uh, when you were moving around and sometimes you might have not sold your house or whatnot, would you say you are part of that, that black middle class subgroup when you're growing up? I would probably say, yeah, lower to middle, lower middle to middle class. Um, and it's really interesting because growing up, you know, as I mentioned, church was one of the hubs and people used to throw partners and that's how a lot of people bought their homes and, and different things like that. So nearly everyone that I knew, especially in certain parts of the UK, and I mean, one thing I think is the black UK experience can often be boiled down to a black London experience. And I can definitely say living in different parts of the country, there are much less or when there are fewer black people very 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 different black experience but in those spaces a lot of the people that we knew also owned homes too so that was definitely part of our experience growing up with black people in kind of two-parent families in a faith space owning their own home and moving into more um, urban or inner city places like Birmingham very 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 different experience of blackness growing up so I mean I've probably gone off on a bit of a tangent there but moving around definitely um, gave you an insight into the different kinds of black communities there are in this country which I think sometimes people don't have because they don't leave where they're from yeah yeah for sure and yeah no it's not necessarily a tangent it makes sense and it, all sorts of stuff popping up I haven't said that as well in your book again I, I keep referring back to it but you talk about with that two-parent narrative as well in the black community whereas in the news if you're watching only the news you'd think that every single black person in the UK grew up with only their mum but that's <laughs> that's not the case where well, I think what was the number I might be quoting it wrong 18 19 percent something like that but don't quote me on that something like that um is the amount of black people in the UK have grown up in a single parent household yeah, so, and that was from the 2011 census. And of course, not everyone fills in the census and all of those things, but it's definitely not as high as people think. And I think sometimes we mix up things being disproportionate with things being everybody. So we have a disproportionate amount of single parent families in black communities, but that doesn't mean that everyone or most people grow up with just one parent. And I think we, part of the narrative changing that we can do is to hear more of these stories because the stories that we do tend to hear are the disproportionate stories because they're outliers. A two-parent family is not really that interesting, is it? So that's not the story that gets told. And I think that's one of the reasons why, despite the disproportionality of single-parent households, I'm always really pleased to talk about my upbringing because I think it sheds light on a more complex narrative that I think people need to hear. I think people find the rags to riches stories most compelling, but actually there's a big middle ground where there's kind of no rags to riches, it's probably just a continuum of 
life in a certain kind of a way. Um, because many of my friends then who were raised in church with those families, then got married, had children, are in those families. Of course, there's more divorce now um, than probably when our community first came here and, and were more tight knit and together through good and some very bad circumstances. But I think it's definitely a story that needs to be told in all of its complexity. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's a narrative that needs to be, um, you know, properly told and highlight highlight all these different groups because not every single person, like you said, has grown up in a single parent household. In fact, most haven't. And stats show that as of the 2011 census anyways, but it's not going to be like a massive swing that's going to change that so much. So um, yeah, for sure, I agree. Looking, yeah, early on, what were your career ambitions actually when you were younger? Well, my mom says that when I was five, I said I wanted to be a lawyer because then I could afford to pay someone to make my bed. How I knew that that was a thing at five, mm. I don't know. <laughs> um, maybe, and I should have probably gone down that route. But being a journalist wasn't like a... A thing I always had in me. I loved the news, I loved telling stories, but I didn't see it as a career path until I was mature, like I was 21, 22, 23, when I started thinking about journalism. So that wasn't really a thing. But one thing that I did know I wanted to do when I was young is I wanted a portfolio career. I did not know what these things even meant, but I just wanted to do something where I did different things all the time. I just knew that I would get bored. So that was kind of something that I used to talk about when I was probably like 16, 17, 18, like a portfolio career. Um, and yeah, I've got one of those now, but it wasn't like a straight direct line like lawyer doctor um this was the 90s and people weren't really talking about those things in that way yeah it's all like trying to find yourself when you're young trying to find where you want to go and what exactly you want to do over time did you go to university and study then I did when I was older again I, did, I didn't go straight from school in fact I kind of started my levels twice and quit I just did not enjoy education probably because we'd moved around so much and school wasn't this kind of romantic continuum so you know, when I started A-levels, I was like, well, this is boring. I prefer to get a job. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do at that stage properly. So getting a job was kind of a, a good move for me. And then I finally went to uni, quit one course. Are you seeing a theme here? And then um, and then after I quit that one, someone said to me, you know, my dad packed me off to talk to someone at the BBC. And they said, have you ever thought about journalism? And I was like, no. And then I just, that was that. I just found a course. And then, yeah, that was the career kind of laid yeah, you were, I'm guessing you were in your early 20s by then, then, right? Yeah, so I graduated when I was about 25, I think, 25, 26. Yeah, yeah. Now, that's a similar story to me anyways. I, I think a lot of young people don't necessarily know exactly what they want to do. Just do something because you've been told you've got to do something. You've got to study something. So. And uni courses are so expensive, you know, to be pushed into something that you're not ready for. And I, I can 100% tell you that I was a better employee after leaving uni having worked I'm much more capable of actually getting a job because I knew more what working life was about, I think. And I'm not knocking it because everyone has to find their path. But when people go straight from school to uni, some of them have never had a job. And when they get into the working world that seems like this great freeing place where you can do what you want to do, <laughs> and then you get to one side, actually, it's not like that at all. I think sometimes it's actually quite a shock to the system. So uh, for me, that, that was a good way around for doing it. Yeah, a lot of people go to uni, study something and then embark on a career that's completely different to what they studied because they didn't know what they wanted to do. They just studied something because it's maybe they thought that at the time or you just have to do something because, you know, in school, you're told that one singular narrative. You go to school, you get your A-levels, you go to uni, you get a job, um, then you have two kids, live in the suburbs, get a dog, <laughs> live happily ever after. You're told that one narrative and nothing else. There's no alternatives. So people... Yeah. Yeah, you do make some expensive mistakes. You go and study things you don't want to study. I've done that before, and I've dropped out. <laughs> I've dropped out of courses. And you well. still have the debt to pay when you when you don't ah. do it. So I, I think there is something about advocating people to understand themselves a bit more before they decide. Now, if you do like a generic course that you can go on to do anything, and, and actually probably doing a journalism course, you, you can go on to do lots of different things anyway. But if you're doing something very, very niche because you think that this is the path, I think there's always worth like you know gap years but these things are expensive and it's who can afford them and whose parents can afford them to take a year off maybe and go find themselves but it will look different for everyone but I think for everyone there is a path to finding the right thing for them rather than shoehorning themselves into what other people say is important. For sure for sure and around that period of time of your life when you're younger trying to find yourself trying to find what you wanted to do with your career of your life and all of that kind of thing uh you went through the the well, the, you had the stillbirth when you were 19 years old yeah do you mind talking a bit about that experience what that was like for you and how that 
impacted your time? I think it was devastating. I think at 19, I didn't really grasp the full context of what was I was going through, actually. I think it's been years later on that you really can understand, can unpack the emotional intelligence, have the space to actually begin to deal with it. And I think life can be so challenging for some people earlier. For some people, they don't experience grief until later on in life. I think experiencing grief at a very young age definitely had a massive impact on me. Relationship building, motivation, um, drive, so many things. Some of it positive again, some of it negative. I think at that time, you know, you try and search for some kind of meaning in it. You know, what does this mean about me, about, you know, what's all about? So I went through, I've been through so many stages of grief over and over and over again. And I think really probably only as an adult now, years down the line, years, am I really wrestling with what does grief mean? What does it mean to love deeply someone who will never be here again? And I think these are things, again, that I don't think people talk about enough. We, we don't really talk about grief because everyone most people actually don't want to die. So because most people don't want to die, we don't talk about death, which means we don't talk about the side effects of death, which is everyone that's left behind, the grieving that happens and the way that that manifests itself in a person's personality. I think we've become so much more comfortable with talking about so many things like mental health and just so many other things. But I still think exploring grief is something that we haven't yet come to grips with because it's kind of like, oh, well, you grieve, you go through these stages. It might take some time, but then you get over it. And I think anyone who's ever loved someone deeply who's no longer here can tell you that in many different ways, in many different guises, that pops up in your life. It pops up in your mind. It pops up in your memories. It pops up at certain times of the year. And it's not just a case of, well, let me just put that in a box because we're talking about deep, deep emotions of longing, really, and a longing that most people know won't be fulfilled and I think we need to take more time to, to honour those feelings and to honour when people are going through through them as a supportive mechanism. Because actually what the grief didn't do was stop me living my life. It was after the, after I lost my daughter that I did everything. That is when I achieved all the things. That's when I went to uni. That's when I, you know, I moved to London. That's when I got the jobs. That's when I got the drive. That's where I got the, the real push just to do something with my life. It, it gave me all of that. You know, that experience gave me that but it also took a lot away in terms of feeling afraid to, to love deeply, having been so hurt with a loss. So I think the more we can try to understand the ways that it pushes people forward and, and, and pulls them back is the more we understand how it is in the round of life. And it's not something that people just move on with. It's something that moves with them. But how do we help people to move with it in a healthy way that they can still live to their full potential whilst honouring that deep longing that won't go away because the person won't come back. So I think there's much to learn, much for me to learn. It might be my next book, to be honest. But yeah, I think that that's kind of what that experience has taught me. Yeah. Well, one thing I'll say is that I think it's amazing that you have come out and spoke about it. I mean, not just here. I've seen you spoke about this experience in a few different places. Um, and you're even an ambassador for SANS as well you talk about you know i think it's amazing it's not like a simple thing to talk about at all there's probably people that have gone through you know people have gone through all sorts of stuff but to put it out in such a public domain when you're a public figure as well is very 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 tough so very commendable and I'm, i think it's one of them ones that people hear they read about it and they're inspired just by hearing that maybe they're not alone in going through whatever they're going through so um thank you for sharing that really appreciate it what was it about that experience do you feel that gave you that that drive to then push on and you know go and do what you're you know carry on with your life at the time i just thought i'm alive crazy as that sounds you know i was 19 and i just thought this cannot be the end of my life there's just no way and i think i just always had that drive ever since and it's funny because i was quite a bright child but quite lazy um, I was, you know, I, I was predicting good grades. I didn't revise, you know, I was that, I was that kind of child, you know, started courses, quit them, you know, I just, I didn't really have that much going on in my head because I just felt like, well, whatever I want is going to happen. So I, I wasn't really thinking too deeply about life, but that made me think deeply about life. It made me think deeply about the kind of life I wanted to have. You know, when I got pregnant, I wasn't trying to get pregnant. It was a massive 
you know, it was an accident really. I, I wasn't trying to do it. So all of a sudden this thing comes and changes your life and you think it's going in one direction. Then, you know, right at the end of the pregnancy, I lose the baby. Then my life is now going in a different direction. And I think it just made me think, okay, wow, like life can really just turn upside down and all around. So what can I do to happen to life rather than just let it happen to me? And I think that is what gave me the drive is I think, you know, I want to happen to things rather than things just happening to me all the time. Now that headstrongness and that steel rod down my back has, has not always manifested itself in, in the most positive of ways. Um, sometimes it's, it's made me quite stubborn and really unflexible. Like, okay, I don't like this. That's it end of like not going to do it because you want to protect yourself from from feeling that hurt that's what it is really and you see so many people operating out of that space what just seems like pig-headed stubbornness is a defensive wall and I think when you're black you move through the world in a different way anyway so it's like this double thing that you've kind of got going on to protect yourself and to make sure that the things that you want to happen happen and for me, sometimes it's sheer force of personality that I make things happen. Um, but it just made me think, you know what? I, I just want to make life happen for me. I don't want to leave this earth and feel like I didn't live or I didn't fulfill my potential. I didn't do what I can do. Even with the golf, like I have that same mentality. I just want to see how far I can go. How far can I push it? How low, you know, can I get, and I hate this handicap word for golf, but how, how low can I get this score? Because that is kind of, you know, what I want to do. I just want to push myself further and further. So from that point moving forward, did you feel to yourself that I'm going to be successful in whatever I put my hands to? I don't think I thought about it in terms of success, probably, um, which was silly because if I had a I'd have done even more. <laughs> um, but I think I just more thought about, like, I just always feel like, let me see how far I can take this. The presenting, how far can I push this? You know, in terms of my business, how far can I push this? And then when I feel like, okay, I can't push this any further, then normally I'm like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> so see ya. Um, but it, 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 it does just make me think, okay, right, anything I put my hand to, how can I do it to an excellent level and be known for that level of excellence? And also my dad's personal motto when I was growing up was excellence always. So I think there's, there's that's always kind of been in the background as well. And I think probably just what happened, everything kind of just joined together and propelled me into like forward motion. It's funny how um, our parents' mottos stay with us our whole life. <laughs> my, oh, yeah. <laughs> my, my dad's one was, don't lie, never lie. Oh, <laughs> see, my dad too, once we stole money out of my dad's car to buy sweets from the shop. And he's mm. like, did you take the money? Me and my sister were like, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't. <laughs> um, he made us write lines, speak the truth and speak it ever, cost it what it will. She who hides the wrong she did does the wrong thing still. <laughs> we wrote that so many times. It's imprinted in my brain. So like your dad, my dad, the same. Lying, telling lies, being untrue, like absolute non-negotiable. My dad, yeah. He, he would be like, um, what's the number one? The number one rules, don't lie. So if I've done something, I might have taken some money or, I don't know, broken something, whatever. He'll call me, Tevin, who done this? I don't know. I don't know. He'll be like, what's the number one rule? I looked at him. Uh, <laughs> Don't lie. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to tell you everything. But I do think that honesty is a very, very underrated um, gift to give to yourself. Honestly, I, I really, really do think that um, when you don't want to tell lies, I think it's very helpful for your life, for your career, for everything, because then you don't want to lie to yourself either. And I think when you're comfortable with telling other people lies, you get comfortable telling yourself lies. And I think that's really a downward spiral. So in a way, I, I'm really glad for that because it kind of taught me to, you know, just be honest. And it's not always easy. And sometimes I've maybe swerved the truth. <laughs> but, um, but no, yeah, I think it's an absolute gift. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think that honesty, especially with yourself, is like when you can learn to be honest with yourself and really look at yourself and analyze yourself properly, it's, you can really start to embark on a healing journey for yourself and I feel like a lot of people probably everyone anyways I can't talk for everyone but at least most people do have some sort of a healing journey that they need to go on and it definitely starts with being honest looking introspectively and being very honest with yourself and then from there you can take the right steps and move forward or try to take the right steps and move forward before it is you're trying to overcome uh with, so you said your first job was at the BBC right well my in, in journalism yeah 
Okay, first job in journalism. That's in was it was at the BBC. How did that come about, and what was that experience like? So when I started uni, I had a tutor called Sarah Rowlands, and she just really believed in me. So from my interview for uni, she said, "You're going to be a newsreader. You're going to be a star." Um, you know, you're going to be on the telly. Who's here with you today? Your mum? I was like, yeah, my mum. It's like X Factors. My mom, so um, <laughs> yeah. she just really believed in me, actually. And, and she just, I think she just thought I had a talent. And so she got to pick a couple of people who went to the BBC on work experience. And I was one of the people that she picked. And so I went on this work experience. And, you know, just so happened that my dad, who was classed a quote unquote community leader, was, you know, part of someone that they used for comment and just different things and he was about to get his own show and they were like oh you're Joe's daughter we love Joe like oh hi and, and so I think that definitely helped my work experience I think it also helped that on work experience I had worked before so I knew what was useful to be around a workplace what was not useful so sitting down on your phone all day not useful getting stuck in offering to do things very very useful standing up for yourself also useful because obviously mm. work experience one lady um she was great but she was tough and she said um I'd been there all morning because I'd gone in early I said I want to see all the shifts I want to do everything you know I want to come in early I want to go home late so came in early one morning and she was like and then I'd gone out on a story with someone she's like when you come back you're gonna watch the program and I said no I watched it last night and I came in early today and she said well you know if you want to get the best out of the experience I said I'll see you tomorrow um and <laughs> that was insight into like even a work experience and actually it, a couple of weeks later she came to me and said there's a job going and we think you should go for it so I think it's just a, a lesson in that yes you want to be flexible and up for stuff at the same time not an idiot and um I think she respected the fact that I was like no actually I you know this is kind of the path I'm doing for this work experience and yes then there was a job going, they told me to apply for it. I applied for it, I got it. And that's how I started in the BBC. So it's, it was really an easy route into journalism for me. You know, obviously I was working hard and doing the right things and being in the right place at the right time, but it wasn't a tough route. And I know that's not everyone's story. And I know sometimes, you know, I've been with white journalists, well, you know, it must be so hard for you as a black woman to like get into journalism. Actually, it was pretty easy, um, but I think, notwithstanding the fact that they knew my dad. And I think it just goes to show so much. It's about who you know, how connected you are, and you as a person as well. So I think, yeah, that was my journey in, but it wasn't like a tough millions and millions of rejections. Um, no. What was it like the first time you went on TV? Nerve wracking. My sister said <laughs> to me, you look like a deer in the headlights. <laughs> <laughs> my eyes were like saucers um, and I think the hard thing you know you practice and practice so much before you go on air so I practiced and practiced and you practice and practice but when you go on air you have the gallery in your ear and that's the difference so when you're practicing by yourself you're just practicing to time and then all of a sudden now you have people counting and although you do practice it's not enough so mm. when they're counting you out you know 10 I visibly like jumped because someone's like talking to me in my ear whilst I'm talking and my sister was like your eyes were just wide you look terrified uh I think that it was it was nerve-wracking um and it's something interesting because you know I do media training and I you know train clients on presentation and people say I, you know I just don't want to feel nervous anymore I felt nervous sometimes throughout the whole 13 years even towards the end when I'd you know been doing it for so long I would sometimes still feel nervous when I would go on air and I think that just showed me that I cared but the first time the nerves were like off the Richter scale I could hear my heart I could hear my you know in my eardrums but yeah it was it was definitely nerve-wracking but an adrenaline buzz and um and yeah and it's always been an adrenaline buzz um even when I no longer wanted to do it but actually being on air is like a huge high yeah I can imagine I, I feel like I'd be so nervous as well with me my thing is that I overthink so I always I'm always the person I love to put myself up for stuff so I always put myself forward for any kind of public speaking presentation whatever in front of uh, however many people I don't care I put myself up for it and I'll be so nervous sometimes I'm shaking <laughs> I'm so because you're like you want to say the right thing you don't want to mess up you start thinking of every single scenario in your head but yeah, I always still put myself up anyways, no matter how nervous I am. I like doing it. It's like that adrenaline rush, isn't it? It's like that challenge as well. It is challenging. Yeah. I think the thing that most people get wrong about nerves is they think it's negative. I don't think that's negative. I think there is just so much adrenaline buzzing through your body, something that, you know, you are up for doing and you want to do it right. And I think if you can channel that, 
then it's always a brilliant thing. I think it becomes when people can't control it, that's when it becomes hard. But I've just always channeled it to go, okay, right, how can I do this to the best of my ability? Right, I am switched on. When they hit that, when they count down to that one and cue Janelle, I'm off. And like that's, yeah, that's how I've always used it. Yeah. So you spent 13 years working media, journalism, etc. in that media world in general. And you came in as an intern, you left it as quite a senior person in the industry. What would you say was the most challenging role at the, um, during that, that period of your life? Managing people, I would say, is the most challenging role, followed shortly by having a job that a lot of people want. Some people thrive off that. I didn't enjoy that as much. I found it quite isolating and quite lonely a lot of the time and actually you know people twisting things you say or different things you do because you have something that they want and because of the industry and it probably happens in all industries you know people say watch the throne and I think there's a, there's some sort of that a lot and I I didn't like that and managing people is just challenging because people are complex I'm complex and you've got all this complexity going on all the time like always with them with you with you and them like um I definitely say that managing people would be one of my least favorite things to do in the workplace but is that something that you've worked on over time you feel no I just don't manage people <laughs> <laughs> you, know um, <laughs> you know your strengths and your weaknesses <laughs> I think it's do you know what I think it's really important to know yourself and so for me I'm the kind of person actually I think if I were to manage people again there's there's like two non-negotiables that I would have. One, I'd have to hire everyone myself. Inheriting teams is incredibly tricky, I think, because then not personalities you'd necessarily hire and the things that someone else has seen in them might not be the things that you see in them. And so they've picked them for a reason, for their fit, for the thing that they're trying to build. But when you're leading something, you're trying to build something and actually those personalities might not be a fit for that build. Some people inherit teams are like, it's all fine. But I think most people deep down, if you had the chance, would like to be able to hire, manoeuvre, manipulate that team into what you think it should be for your vision. Um, and the other thing is, I would just have someone else to do all the people bit. <laughs> I like to manage things rather than people. So I think I would probably have a team, but have someone else manage the team, as in their feelings, their holiday all of those things <laughs> and I would just manage the work because I think I'm far more comfortable doing that but I know that about myself and, and the other thing is I can really only manage very motivated people some people like these manager coaches I don't want to have to tell you what you need to do today in terms of coming into work and doing a job um I'll tell you what to do talk about what to do but in terms of the motivation bit I actually don't find that um, that's not something that I love doing, but some people love coaching people. Not me. Yeah, makes sense. Find out what you like doing. Work smart, don't work hard. <laughs> and that's it. That's the hack to life. <laughs> what would you say was the highlight of your media career? Ooh. There were lots of highlights. I'll tell you I enjoyed interviewing um, Sir Lenny Henry. I enjoyed interviewing him. I enjoyed interviewing Dame Joan Bakewell. I thought she was like a fascinating person. I think I enjoyed the fact that it made my family quite proud. I think that's probably a highlight. And, you know, if my dad had his way, I'd be back on air again tomorrow. So I'm glad that I made him proud for a bit because it's not going to happen in that way. So, um, but I think enjoying and, and, and just knowing that it hopefully helped some younger black people to look at the TV and just see, okay, I can do that. Like that job is available for me. I think those are probably some of the highlights that I've had. Because when you go on air, it kind of all turns into a blur really of you were here, you were there. I can watch pictures back and kind of see. But I think if anything, it's probably um, just being able to hopefully show someone that this is a career path that's open to them and that it's not inaccessible. And also to show people in newsrooms that, you know, we belong everywhere for sure that visible representation which is missing in quite a lot of areas and to see it on a tv screen i think would be or is maybe would be is very 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 important because when you see it you can believe it so yeah you see it and automatically they start to internalize it and can believe that they can do something like that as well so for sure really good let's talk about now so you've left media you left that world after 13 years you've got to set up your own consultancy 
What was the motivation behind doing that? I don't like working for people and I'm probably borderline <laughs> unmanageable. I think that's probably <laughs> the main motivation. But also I think it's just more about um, working in ways that feel good for me and that align with my values. Very much values-driven person. And there is something about being able to work in a way or at a standard, at a level, that I believe is the right standard, the right level to be working at that feels good for me. And also, you know, I just... I feel really passionate that we need many, many, many more black entrepreneurs, business people, people in their own businesses and, and leaving that legacy behind. And there are so many people doing it. So it's not about the fact that there's not anyone doing it. You know, I don't believe that, but I think it's about let's have more volume. Let's have that at more scale and really showing people what we're capable of. When you're in someone else's business, when you're in someone else's organization, you can go as far as someone else will let you essentially and there's we need people there too so I'm not saying everyone should go and own their own business I, I don't believe that but I think to change the narrative to change the dynamic of communities we need people in lots of different pockets and spaces so I think it's about for me recognizing that I think I'd gone as far as I could in media and the roles that I wanted to do weren't really available to me because of the route I'd gone down. If I'd gone down the producer route, and I think if I had my time again, I wouldn't have gone down the presenting route. I'd have gone down the production route. I would have had also a bit more influence in narratives and shaping storytelling. You know, presenting, you get to do a bit of it. But that's not where the big decisions are made about direction, strategy. And so for me, when I weighed up, okay, well, what do I think is, you know, this visible representation worth? versus other change I might be able to bring, it didn't weigh up for me. Um, being on air, I felt after a certain point was probably more beneficial for me as a person than necessarily it was for a community. And there are loads of black women, black men, black people who would want to be on telly. So I feel like that is <laughs> an area that's well covered off, but actually what can I do to make deeper change in other spaces is, is kind of more where my head started to go towards so that was partly behind starting it and just yeah. myself yeah when you talk about the business aspects and needing more black entrepreneurs so that's something i definitely agree with and i've forgotten the exact figures i haven't looked for a little while now but um looking at the median um levels of wealth by different communities in the uk so black african was like maybe like one thousand i don't know something like it was so low then Black Caribbean, I think, was even less than the average white family. A white person had, like, wealth of, like, over 100K. And that's usually in the form of, like, inheritance of a house or something like that. So there's massive, massive, massive wealth disparities there. So it's about thinking, okay, what can we do to start closing those um, closing those wealth disparities and basically just having a bit, bit more of an equal world, a bit of an equal society for everybody to live in? And again, I think it's about narratives in this space. And I'm currently working on the project Um around black wealth which is super interesting because again it's we have disproportionate poverty which skews those numbers massively as well also and so I think it's about making sure that we're telling the complex story of black businesses black wealth as well as the story of black poverty so when I look at some of those figures as important as in the tracker as they are they're going to take the highest and the lowest and if there's disproportionality or disproportionate amount of low numbers, that's going to pull that whole thing down. And so I think we need to make sure that we are still giving young people a story of hope because that's like a hopeless story. It sounds like, okay, well, it just doesn't happen for us. And it does happen for us. And so I want to make sure that we are telling complex stories about this and then talking to people about the black wealth that is out there and the black entrepreneurs in a world where, fame matters <laughs> and numbers matter on you know social media and all of those things it's very easy to look at the entertainment industry for our role models because they're the most visible because they're the most shown so therefore the most seen but I think it's down to us and projects like 1000 Voices which is why I think it's such a brilliant project because it's going to highlight at least 800 people out of the thousand that people might never know about if there wasn't this project and wouldn't shine a light on them because they're just someone in their space doing their thing, building their own wealth, building their own intergenerational wealth for their family, for their community. And actually, once we begin to see, it's kind of like a connect the dots where all of these things are happening, like satellites all over the UK, 
I think once we start to see that, we're going to feel a lot better about what our future could be because we're going to see the potential. Because I think at the moment we see a lot about the lack and where there's not. But I think let's start seeing where there is because we will lift a whole generation if we can do that. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, I totally agree on that narrative aspect as well. So we're with a thousand voices. So I wanted to make it as diverse as possible because, you know, growing up, you only you only get, you only see people from maybe a certain type of industry, like you said, entertainment or sports or something like that. And not that there's anything wrong with it because you still need to work very, very hard to, yeah. to be able to be successful in those kind of industries as well. But it's quite a singular narrative and you've got people who are success, successful in all sorts of different walks of life who don't get as much visibility um, as people in entertainment or sports or maybe social media or whatever sort of thing. So, yeah, we, there's people in, out here everywhere <laughs> doing their thing everywhere, all, all over the place. Uh, with you, yeah, so with the consultancy, it's a communications consultancy. What would you say, how, how can black people working in organizations communicate issues to their colleagues to management when they're facing maybe some kind of maybe a personal discrimination or just communicate personal issues to them in an effective way so i think one of the first things uh, again my dad you say um nip it in the bud before it becomes a full-blown flower i think what happens sometimes is when we see little things i'm not talking about the minute but when things start happening often people don't say anything so it's really bad and when it's really bad, you're going to be at the height of your emotions, whether that's angry or feeling very low, both of which are sometimes um, unhelpful places to communicate from because you, you probably won't communicate with the kind of precision that you would like to because of how you're feeling. So you'll either be like off the scale <laughs> or you will be unable to kind of back yourself if you're feeling too low. So I think don't wait until it's so bad that you cannot take any more because that's not the moment. I think you want to, when there's kind of enough that you're like, okay, I can see some things going on here. I think that is the moment to begin to flag and say, I'm seeing some things that make me feel uncomfortable. These are what those things are. And, you know, raising that so that when it comes, if it does come to that, you know, crescendo, it's not a case for well, why didn't you say something? Because that's often the thing, you never said anything. We thought you were happy um, because people just soldiering on. So I think there's a sense of nip it in the bud as you see things start to appear. The other thing you need to, I think, need to think is we can think of one, the way the world should be and the way the world is. And I think a lot of the times people operate in the way the world should be. So things should be fair. People should be believing me. People should be seeing this. People should be understanding this. But the reality is sometimes we're not operating in that space. And when we're not, you have to use different tactics because just because people should doesn't mean they will. So I think it's often about really understanding what you are dealing with. If you're dealing with like a massively manipulative person, manipulative person who's going to twist everything you say and like different kinds of things, you, you can't just go on it with they're really manipulative. It's about understanding that management often don't see the business as it is they see it from where they are so they say well everyone's lovely because they are to their managers of course why wouldn't you be <laughs> most yeah. people are nice to their managers so it's about understanding that when you come in and say well this person's doing this thing that manager has likely never seen that behavior because one they're their manager and two they might be the same as them so it's about realizing that you have to approach it from this way of kind of i know this might seem unlikely and maybe, and sometimes what I do is I kind of double bluff myself and maybe I've got it wrong. <laughs> and, I'm, and, I'm, and I know that that feels kind of counterintuitive, but the thing about it is sometimes we can get things wrong. Sometimes it might not be racing. That person might just be an absolute idiot. And actually, if you talk to 10 other people, they are treating those people exactly the same. Sometimes that person is racist, but racism is always hard to prove unless someone is saying, doing racist things. So a lot of the times what I talk about is unfairness. So I will say, well, does this seem fair? Because this is what's happening to this person. And this is what's happening to me. And I'm just wondering why that is. And then people say, well, you can't be calling people. I call anyone racist. Mm. Something unfair going on. And I'd like to understand why. And, you know, as an employee here, I hope that you would like to help me understand why. And for you to understand why as well. And I think it's just about remembering that managers do not experience the business as staff. And if you are a manager, it's about you understanding that you don't experience the staff as they are 
and as they are with each other, you experience it in a very, very different way. So I think it's just about really being smart and being a bit more strategic, raising things sooner and really taking a look at the environment and the landscape, not just kind of launching in with what you would like to see happen, but looking at the landscape and also sometimes understanding if what you really need to be planning is your exit. Sometimes people feel like they don't want to lose. You know, I don't want them to win. Okay, but you know what? Having peace of mind is a win. <laughs> Keeping your sanity intact is also a win. Um, we don't have to struggle. There are other organisations where people will treat you more fairly. So I think it's also about understanding when an exit route is actually what needs to be planned rather than trying to make people change because some people don't want to change and some cultures are not open to change. And if that's the case, you will drive yourself into a really low place, questioning yourself, questioning your value, questioning your worth, questioning if you know what you know, questioning your skills. And I've been there. And that's why I'm just kind of like, it's just not for me. Unless leadership want to change an organization, culture won't change. So read the landscape as much as anything else. Yeah, that's really good. Let's talk about Communicate for Change, yeah? your book. Such a good book. And I'm not saying that just because I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> like, I honestly believe it because I got that book um, in anticipation. Oh, I started reading through it in anticipation of the interview. And I was reading, I was like, wow, this is really good. Like, really, I was in, reading it on my honeymoon on the beach. Like, it's really, <laughs> it's, really, it's really, really good. Like, I feel like I'm picking up so many pointers. And I've got, just from what I've read so far, I feel like there's so much, so many takeaways. I love the way you put things down. I was going to say, I love the way you communicate. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, and there's so many really key takeaways, like learning to disagree with each other, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. It's a really good book. So, but on that, still on that communication angle, and then communicate for change, you talk about free speech a bit. Yeah. So, on that free speech angle, you know, recently, so Elon Musk is talking about buying Twitter and he's talking about how if he does buy it, he's going to promote free speech and possibly reinstate Donald Trump. That's just one big example. But in a very general sense, what's your opinion on free speech in that regard? Do you believe everybody has a right to free speech, no matter what kind of rhetoric they may spew using their platform? I think people have, I think everyone has a right to free speech, but I don't think people have a right to hate speech. And I think the issue with the way the world is now is a lot of people think hate speech is things they disagree with <laughs> and that's not always what hate speech is um disagreeing with what someone is saying is not the same as them being hateful and i think that's probably where we're falling down in terms of communicating with each other i am a believer in free speech because one i'm a journalist so maybe that's not so unusual but two because i think who gets to decide who is free to speak so you might think, okay, well, me curbing that kind of speech helps me, but how do you know that that same tool won't be turned on you and the things that you say? And so that's why I'm a believer in free speech because typically the people who have decided what's in and what's out don't have everyone's best interests at heart. You know, at the moment we have a government who's trying to curb people's right to protest. So that will mean, you know, if you're too noisy, you can be arrested, too noisy according to who? The police? okay, do they have hard hearing or do they have full hearing? You know, like what, who is to say what is one person's noise level of acceptance? You know, I can hear some people's headphones on the tube and they probably say, oh, it's not loud enough, they turn it up some more. It's all, a lot of it's subjective. So I think it's about thinking, okay, well, when does this stray into hate speech that is harmful or could cause harm or could cause people to be violent towards other people? then we're straying into a different territory. You know, one of, there's a couple of things from school that I remember, not too many, but one of them was our RE lesson. And it was all about rights and responsibilities. Everyone knows their rights, but what's your responsibility? So whilst I do think free speech is a right everyone has, there is a responsibility with that free speech to not cause harm. And that's when we're straying into something else. So I, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a believer in free speech. What I will say about Donald Trump is since he left Twitter, the whole temperature of Twitter went down. By like 15 degrees the day he left Twitter you could feel it it was just quieter um but then I, I find it really weird that people say that his free speech is muzzled because he can't go on Twitter when there's like the rest of the world speaking to. <laughs> so I think 
we can over we can add too much importance to some of these spaces and say whether someone is or isn't on there is about their free speech i don't think that's true they're just not on twitter are they free to go and speak at the places where people will listen absolutely they can start a blog they can start a podcast they can speak to the world in so many ways so i think we've given twitter and other social media platforms an over importance in a sense of sharing messages um but yeah do i want to see him on there not really <laughs> <laughs> Great. And on that Donald Trump angle, so he's popularized that term fake news. And in your book, there's a really funny story about the trip to Malawi when you went to go and film, try and do a story about was it about the lack of rainfall? And yeah. then when your tail was raining, rained. <laughs> which is bad timing, right? But then it didn't fit narrative, and then you just had to film what you film and then can't because you already had the story ready and you just got to get your story ready. Um, so with that, so with that fake news here and, and taking that into account, so it's like you've got a narrative and you you come in with a preconceived narrative, like, okay, we're going to get this story out no matter what. And we spoke, we've spoken about narratives quite a bit already in this interview as well. So on that, on that angle, can we trust what we see in the news? Should we trust what we see in the news? And if not, where do we go in order to understand what's happening in the world? You know, I, I don't think we can trust what we see in the news as a sole source. Um, and I think that's probably where I land. I still watch the news, but I just know it's an angle. There's a lens that they're seeing it through. There's a, probably a political leaning that they're seeing it through. There's an owner that has a reason why they would want to buy a news organisation and, and kind of share their views. And so I, I tend to watch the news now through that lens. Um, but I, I, I just think that still our, our best way of reading the world is by knowing other people and I and I think that's the only way to kind of read the world so for me it's about how to inform yourself outside of media and and there's a lot of people who already don't watch the news you know they kind of get their news kind of off twitter in like snatches and instagram and tiktok and whatever passes up when they're looking you know ads that cross their eyes there's already loads of people who don't access mainstream news I don't think that makes us better informed. I don't think people are better informed. That I actually think that there's even it's even harder to know what is the truth. But then I don't think we've ever known what the truth is. We've known versions of truth. And I think this comes to seeing the world as we are, not as the world is. So in terms of being informed, for me, it's like I look at different sources. I look at different angles. I might look at read the BBC article, read the Sky article, read the Times. You know, read the Mirror. Sometimes I even read the Daily Mail, do you know what I mean? I, because I just want to see a view of what people are saying, because that gives me a, a lens into the perspectives that this story is being seen through. And I think that's the important thing to think about, the different perspectives this story is being seen through, not just my own. Yeah. You don't seem afraid to speak your mind. Is that a trait that you've developed over time? Or is it something you've always been like? I think I was always outspoken, even as a child. Um, people tell me that I used to ask so many questions. Like, I was never afraid to, like, question everything. Why? You know, well, why? And I used to question my parents, apparently, all the time about why I couldn't do things they were telling me to do. So, but then my parents also encouraged that via, you know, us having family meetings when we were children where they would encourage us to share our opinions and, and all of those things and, you know, what we're doing as a family. So we were kind of encouraged as well in that, confidence to be open and stand up for yourself so I think yeah it's probably been something that's always been there but hopefully I've honed it <laughs> through the years to be a bit softer and, and not so blunt but I am I can be quite blunt and I and I can be quite direct and I like what I like and I don't like what I don't like and I don't try to be something I'm not I don't try and vibe with people that I don't vibe with you know I I, I try to just be direct because I feel like life is quite short um to not stand up for yourself. And I think losing my daughter was challenging because, you know, I'd seen seven midwives in one week and no one really wanted to um, investigate what was really going on. And that again, gave me like another steel rod down my back. Well, I'm not just gonna not be listened to. I'm not gonna be ignored because I know that sometimes if I know in my gut that something, I need something for me, I don't want to put myself at the mercy of someone else being able to deny me that and it potentially causing me to lose out on something in a big way. So I think that's probably why I've I've ended up being quite direct, which is why I have to work for myself <laughs> because, because it doesn't always go down well everywhere. 
Cool. Looking back on your life, your career, everything, what would you say has been your highest high and your lowest low? Highest high. Do you know, I think it's tricky. After losing my daughter, one thing I said to myself was, I don't want to get carried away with the highs and carried away with the lows, because I feel like that just sends you on like this roller coaster. So I've tried to make an aim to tunnel through. Not that I don't enjoy the highs or feel the lows at all, but I've tried to just tunnel through. It hasn't always worked, but I've tried to. I think highest high, probably um, getting my own home last year. That was a big thing. Thank you. Never thought that would happen because just never thought that would happen. So um, so that was really, really great. Um, my parents helped me, you know, and all of that, but that was a good feeling. And then I think probably my lowest low is not just losing my daughter, but coming to that realization that, that loss would stick with me. I think that's probably the lowest low. Um, but I would also say that sometimes certain workplaces have taken me to quite a low place when it has been a toxic environment. And I think because you spend so much time at work, some of those times have been quite, quite dark and, and, and deep. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose when you talk about the earlier on, you spoke about the advice for people to speak up at work, nip it in the bud. I guess that comes from a personal place because you've yeah. been there. And yeah. All right. So last question before we go into quick fire questions. What do you want your legacy to be? That I helped people to communicate better about tough things. Perfect. All right, great. Let's go into some quick fire questions, quick fire questions, Janelle. So I've got 10 questions here for you. Go on. I feel like, I feel like they start a bit easier and then <laughs> they get a bit more techie as we go down. But whatever comes to your head, you just shout it out. <laughs> Good to go? Okay, yeah. All right, let's go. First question, what's your favorite movie? Bit of a cheesy one, Anna Green Gables. Great. All right, next, what's your favorite book? I'd probably say the four agreements. I thought he was going to say communicate for change. And followed by my, you know what, when you've read your book so many times, you don't even think it's very good anymore. Trust me. Once you've been through the whole editing process, I was crying. I didn't want it to come out. So <laughs> the four agreements. Cool. Okay. All right. Next. Name a song that you can never get bored of. Oh, Beyonce Love on Top. Great. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would you pick? Aki and saltfish with plantain and fried dumplings. All right. And banana. Cool. How do you start your day? Probably lying in bed like, why me? And then, and then, I, then I try to think about something I'm grateful for. Coffee, exercise. Great. Name three people that inspire you. Ooh, Oprah Winfrey. Maya Angelou. My parents, but that's two people, but yeah. Oh, it's okay. We can group them together. Cool. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Don't demonstrate. Be. Um, when I was a newsreader, I was trying to be like a thirty-five-year-old newsreader, and I was like twenty-seven, twenty-five. Yeah. And um, the person who came to train me just said, "Don't demonstrate being a newsreader. You are a newsreader. Just be one." So that was the best advice I've ever had. Great. If you were to dedicate the rest of your life to a charitable cause, what would you pick? I'd probably pick Sands who I'm an ambassador for. All right. Last two questions. What's the kindest thing that someone has ever done for you? Oh. I think my parents given me a deposit for my flowers. <laughs> probably the kindest thing. Um, but, oh, that's so hard because so many people are so kind. I think anyone who's ever said a kind word to me when I'm down is like the kindest thing that's like helps me to remember who I am. So, yeah. All right. And last question. What's one thing people don't know about you? I'm a massive introvert. Oh, okay. Massive introvert. So um, even after this, I will like lie down on the sofa. <laughs> <laughs> um, I find it, I find increasingly as well, being out and about really draining, like really, really, really tiring. So I spend a lot of my time on my sofa recovering. And I think this is why I've taken, why I've loved golf because um, it's outside and it, you can just kind of just go out and not too much talking. Great. All right. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. That's that. Thank you so much for coming to A Thousand Voices, Janelle. Really, really, really appreciate it. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Before we wrap up, have you got any last words and where can people keep up to date with you, what you do as well, if they want to? So I'm on Instagram, although I'm uh, increasingly uh, reluctant 
poster. Instagram, Twitter, at Janelle Aldred. I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I've got a website, Janelle Aldred, and through there you can find my consultancy as well. So you can find me. That's way too many places for an introvert, but I'm in all of those places. And um, I think the final thing I would say is, um, as Black communities, let's allow ourselves to be complex um, and different and nuanced and let's allow each other to tell the truth of our own stories. That's that. Lovely final words. Really, really appreciate you coming on today, Janelle. Really enjoyed our conversation. If you haven't, people, check out her book, Communicate for Change. Very, very, very good. I highly recommend it. And that's that for now. So thank you for coming on to the podcast, Janelle. This is 1,000 Voices. That was Janelle Aldred. And for now, people, we're out. Okay, that was that. As always, thank you for tuning in. It is very much appreciated. And if you haven't already, please do consider subscribing to us or following us wherever you're listening to this right now. It really does help us in trying to amplify the voices of the people that we speak to. Also, what did you think about this episode? What did you gain from this episode? What were some of your key takeaways from this conversation? As always, it's always great to hear from you guys. So leave a comment, leave a review wherever you're listening to this right now. Let us know what you thought about this. The next podcast episode is going to be dropping next week, Tuesday, as they're released every single Tuesday. So if you'd like to see some previews, a few little snippets from that, then follow us on our social media pages at 1000 Voices UK so that you can keep up to date with that before it comes out. The full YouTube video will drop a few days afterwards as well. So keep an eye out for that. But that's that for now. Thank you for tuning in. This is 1000 Voices and for now, people, we're out.